There is no time like the 2020s to start a company, to start a startup. You know, with the rise of the internet, you can learn anything at a very low cost, if not for free. You can build anything without needing to know how to code with tools like Bubble and Adalo. And you can get the word out about your products for free by using, you know, sites like Twitter, Product Hunt, and Reddit. There's no time like the 2020s to build a company. Yet one element of kind of entrepreneurship and company building that hasn't caught up with the times is venture capital. Unless you live, you know, in San Francisco or New York, chances are you may know what venture capital is, but you may not really know how it works. You may not know who the good VCs are, and you may not know how they think. So with this podcast of Forward Thinking Investors, I wanna dive into this world. I wanna help anyone in the world understand what is venture capital, who are the great venture capitalists, and how do they think about their day-to-day with the goal to help more people understand how it works so they can go out and raise capital for themselves. And they can build a billion dollar companies just like you know Larry did at Google or Travis did at Uber or Katrina did at Stitch Fix. That can be you, but it just takes some education. And I'm using this podcast as a medium to teach everyone more about venture capital. So if you want to learn about it, you want to dive in, you want to meet some awesome investors, stick around, listen to some episodes, and I, and I hope you enjoy. All right, how's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Investors, where we talk to investors about, you guessed it, all things investing. Today, I'm very excited to have on the show Stephen Cole, who is an angel investor. Welcome to the show. How's it going? It's going well. Appreciate you having me, Matt. Excited to chat. Yeah, excited to have you on, especially because you are a local investor. I think you might be you might be the first, if not in the first or second, very, very early amount of, uh, of Phoenix-based investors that are on the podcast. So I'm stoked to have some Phoenix representation on here. Um, so I think that to get things going, if you just want to give a high-level overview, who you are, a little bit of your background, um, and kind of how you landed where you are now as an angel investor, and then we can go from there. Sounds good. Yeah, I can give the compressed uh, kind of origin story on me. Um, My background kind of came at things from the computer science side. So studied computer science in school, finished college in 2008. And I'm from the Midwest originally, from Missouri. And I saw Silicon Valley as the place where this internet magic was happening and all this emerging technology that I thought was going to change the world and really wanted to be a part of. So I did everything I could to get a foot in the door in Silicon Valley after I finished college and started my career doing kind of large scale uh, web architecture and engineering. Um, And that was the first four years of that was at eBay. And then after uh, doing some engineering at eBay, I got intrigued with this idea of a startup. Um, I got kind of enchanted with the, the notion of a small group of people with zero bureaucracy, just like marching relentlessly towards some shared vision. And I really wanted to experience that and be a part of that. So uh, one of the leaders at eBay who I really admired um, and still do left to join an early stage cloud computing startup. And um, I joined them, uh, got trusted to kind of be an early engineer and then eventually hire and lead a team and scale an organization. Uh, I had I had kind of two startup journeys as an early employee that I think ended up being really interesting for me to to contrast. So um, I was at a cloud computing startup called Cloud Scaling in San Francisco. Um, it was eventually acquired by EMC, which later was acquired by Dell. 
Um, and then after that, I was an engineer at a deep learning and artificial intelligence company called Nirvana Systems. And, um, and they were acquired by Intel about a year after I joined them. And so in both of those instances, it was kind of like join at a sub 20 person startup and then see the, the journey to like this acquisition by big corporate Leviathan. So going from like 15 people to like hundred thousand people in the case of Intel and kind of everything that, that, um, that, that entails, not just on the technology side, but also on the business side. Um, you know, one of the nice things I loved about a startup is that you get so much exposure to different facets of the business. It's not like narrow, kind of stay in your lane, uh, do the engineering. You get exposure to marketing and growth and, you know, like no one's going to tell you no at a startup, which, which is excellent. So I learned a ton. Um, I feel like those experiences helped me read between the lines about some non-obvious things I, I was certainly naive about before uh, those journeys. Um, I remember thinking if you throw extremely smart engineers in a room together, then amazing stuff will just pop out the other side and change the world. And uh, that's not necessarily the case. Smart engineers are important, but um, those journeys helped give me an appreciation for other parts of the business, like cohesive product vision, the timing and the tone of marketing and kind of how you like tie all of that together. Um, so, so those were my two startup journeys. Um, I also got into Bitcoin in 2013 when I was living in San Francisco, kind of through the tech meetup scene out there and, um, and started allocating some capital there and the combination of, um, the, the second company being acquired and my passion for Bitcoin sort of gave me enough capital to start angel investing. Um, I became really curious about the other side of the table. You know, I was kind of the, like you know, marching, leading engineering teams for startups, and then heard a lot about and got to interface some with the investors in the company. And I wondered like, what is life like on that side of the table? And would I be good at something like that? So dipped my toe in the water at angel investing starting around 2017 and started slow, gradually doing things through syndicates and SPVs to kind of get familiar with the mechanics and just fell in love with it. Like love trying to read between the lines about what it takes to build a great company and, and ship something. And so have been doing more and more of it ever since. And today it's the full-time focus. That's awesome. So picking up where you left off there, you know, if today's it's your full-time focus, what do you like angel investing in? Are there sectors that you like or geographies that you like? Walk us through a little bit about your focus there. Yeah, um, a couple focuses there. So I, you know, I spent 10 years around San Francisco Bay and two years ago moved here to the Phoenix area. Um, very excited about that. I feel like there's so much positive momentum here and um, there, there's somewhat of a decentralization, if you will, happening uh, out from Silicon Valley to other parts of the country, other parts of the world. And I think Phoenix has benefited a lot from that and is really well positioned. So I'm excited to get more plugged into the community here. Uh, appreciate all you're doing too, of course, to like facilitate events like that and build the scene locally. Um, so I would say Geographies outside of Silicon Valley are especially interesting to me. Um, investing locally here in Phoenix is part of that theme. In terms of sectors, um, there are a handful of sectors that I feel like I have a bit of an information advantage in, just that comes with either experience or things that I see as maybe 
insights that aren't widely understood. And so, you know, the, the Bitcoin sector is the biggest example of that uh, for, for me, certainly, but others like um, psychedelic therapeutics, um, nutrition and human performance are areas that I'm particularly interested in. So that's kind of like examples of markets where I'll try to like make a focused effort to meet people, dig in, um, find people working towards certain themes that I believe in and that I kind of believe we'll see play out um, and then be part of that. But outside of those specific markets or geographies, I also just like trying to maximize my exposure to brilliant people like networking and trying to meet people who you can tell are are super smart and very capable and driven. And when you find a founder like that, even if it's in a market or some niche that I've never heard of before and I never considered, I'm super comfortable and really love the journey of like starting from there and then working backwards and understanding that problem space and what they're doing. That's awesome. I, I love that. And what's also great too, is that you didn't just get started with this. You know, you said you started dabbling with this, you know, 2016, 2017, around then, which means you've had like half a decade to get your, you know, your, your hands wet, you know, dealing with this investment stuff. So I'm kind of curious, what have you learned so far since you've been angel investing? And are there things that, you know, you maybe thought were the case back in 2017 that you now realize are different because you have a little more experience under your belt. Yeah, certainly. Um, long list of learnings along the way. Um, I would say two that jumped to mind are the, the first was really that, you know, I, I think in terms of perception and, and how I felt about it, uh, when I was a startup employee, I always had this view of the investors as like, okay, if they're an investor in the company, they are this wildly successful business person. And like, whatever they say, we should just absolutely believe is law and we should go and execute on and do it's like handed down on stone tablets from on high, like that kind of, that kind of a thing. Um, and so I think when I started investing, I felt this internal pressure to have to have all the answers and for everything that I said to be right. And uh, and that wasn't really a comfortable place. Like it didn't feel natural at all, natural at all. And I think I've over time become a lot more comfortable with saying, you know what, like that's a blind spot for me. I don't know the first thing about this particular problem that you're encountering. Uh, I'm, I either might know people who can swoop in and help right away, or I can roll up my sleeves and like, let's learn about it together and partner. But I think I'm a lot more comfortable just being forthcoming about all the things that I don't know and that I haven't been exposed to yet since. And that probably comes with having more data points of sort of what is normal, what is a common journey, and then being able to see like, okay, this is maybe an outlier and a unique situation and just kind of keep it human about that is, is very refreshing. Um, the, I would say as far as another big learning, um, the, the value of I think there's this fixation on quantitative data, you know, that maybe it comes from a lot of the Silicon Valley successes, like Google is kind of known for this hyper analytical culture and desire to like AB test everything and quantify every product change. And I think that a lot of venture capital thinking has inherited some of that. Um, certainly at like later stages, yes, you have to crunch numbers. Absolutely. But I think in earlier stages, a big strength is the willingness to trust your gut. And I wasn't as comfortable admitting that when I got started, 
I wanted to feel like I had this like well thought out, articulated reason for every move that I made. And there's certainly value in being able to like, you know, write down why you feel the way you feel about something. But I think in many cases, you know, we all kind of walk around with these internal like neural networks, if you will, um, in, in deep learning terms that we've trained through pattern recognition over the years. And, and our gut feeling and our reflexes are the result of these like really important processes. Uh, and so I think I'm much more comfortable now executing on that and believing in that and saying, Hey, like, like, yes, things need to be explained and quantified, but maybe there is something special here and, and we should act on that and then, you know, continue to work towards articulating all the why surrounding it. I love that. I, uh, I, it took me a long time to like learn to trust my gut too. And even still, Oftentimes, like sometimes I have some crazy ideas and I'm like, there's that no, like there's no way that that's the answer. But then I think about it, even like a week later, I'm like, you know what? Like I should have just done this a week ago because that is the right thing. And that just is gut. Um, and you know, being for us, because we're kind of a consumer company, it's like I feel like you know, more gut than than ever because you're going on consumer trends and whatnot. And I'm curious for you, like on trends, are there a specific things that are happening in the world that are kind of interesting to you, um, not necessarily markets or sectors, just like technology advancements or geographical changes or even things happening in the Phoenix, like what, what's moving out there in the world that kind of has your attention that has you kind of spending time thinking about? Very much so. Um, the biggest by far, I would say, is uh, I, I try to pay a lot of attention to macroeconomics too and kind of global finance. And I think that one trend that ironically, a lot of Silicon Valley and venture capital money is, is kind of sleeping on is Bitcoin specifically. Um, I, I know that often that gets lumped in just kind of alongside all of the other cryptocurrency and Web3 and blockchain plays. In, in my head, they're almost two separate asset classes. I kind of view it as there, there is Bitcoin with this transformational potential for the world and for the globe, for humanity, if you will. And then there's kind of all the other DeFi, crypto, Web3 stuff, which, you know, there's brilliant people trying to solve interesting problems in that domain, for sure. But I kind of view that realm almost as information technology. It's like it's kind of helping speed up you know, finance, the finance that we've known and the finance that we're sort of capable of in many ways. But what Bitcoin enables, I think is fundamentally different from that. Um, the, we could probably do like a whole three hour podcast just on Bitcoin, but the, the summarized version of why I think that is that Bitcoin is the only one of the thousands of cryptocurrencies and blockchain platforms that cannot be changed. And I think that is why it throws a lot of venture capitalists for a loop is because it's the absolute inverse of the pattern recognition that they're taught, they're kind of trained to look for, right? The like SaaS and the world of software is iterate quickly, you know, um, be, be nimble, be agile. The ability to add features is essential to survive. And that's totally valid in, a, in the context of a company or an app. But I think when you are building a protocol that you want to be predictable and especially something that stands to be to be money, then the rules can't be subject to change. 
And I, I think that the fact that there can only ever be 21 million Bitcoin, no more, no matter how badly anyone wants it, even very powerful global actors, that type of scarcity um, isn't really something that we've ever, I think, been exposed to before. And so I think there's just a huge information advantage in, in understanding that and believing that. And I kind of see Bitcoin today as, you know, the internet of 1992, where like, if you just bet on the internet as a theme in 1992, you did pretty well. And, uh, and Bitcoin, I think, is this similar opportunity where it's positioned to be the world's new money and the internet of money. And so I'm, I'm super excited about all of that entails. So I'm curious, kind of double clicking on that, can, can startups be built on Bitcoin? You know, for me, like my knowledge of Bitcoin is you can buy, you can hold it, you know, it's, it's a store of, you know, a store of value, you can sell it, you can, it goes up, it goes down. But like, I feel like that's generally like the, the common knowledge, but take us a little level deeper. What can people do with Bitcoin? What can they build on top of Bitcoin with? Like help us understand what's going on there. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, companies can definitely be built on Bitcoin. You can sort of think about Bitcoin as a, as a technology stack, if you will. Um, and so tangible examples might be, you know, there are, there are companies out there building wallets so that users could store or transfer Bitcoin, pay for things, companies building long-term storage solutions if you want to keep Bitcoin safe as an investment for 10 years. But there are also these very interesting non-monetary use cases. And, and I think a lot of the internet could even be changed in interesting ways as a result of those. So uh, there's a, a protocol on Bitcoin called the Lightning Network. And you, a lot of people listening may have heard, oh, Bitcoin is like the first cryptocurrency, but it's kind of slow and kind of clunky and the transaction fees can be expensive. And a few years ago, um, the Lightning Network kind of solved that problem. So now it's possible to instantly and virtually for free send even very small amounts of money around the globe. So you can send like a fraction of a penny to someone instantly. And that's not, you know, it's not like Visa or MasterCard where that is sort of this like credit. It's actually, it's equity. It's like the, the money transferring over the wire. Um, and so I think that, stands to change the internet in big ways. If that had been possible when the internet were architected, I don't think we would have a lot of the complex like web of advertisers and middlemen where you have to stop watching YouTube for 15 seconds to watch this ad because that's how they have to monetize things. Um, I think all of that complexity is the result of not having a protocol for money, not being able to send money over IP, if you will. And now we do. And so now we can simplify a lot of the internet. We can monetize our time and co content creators can be rewarded more directly without all the friction of like payment processors and what jurisdiction they're in. So, um, so yeah, there, there are companies out there, startups that are building, um, you know, there's one called Vita uh, that allows you to charge a small amount of Bitcoin to receive text messages um, or to answer your phone. And you can kind of set an hourly or like by the minute rate for which you will take cold calls from, from people who might be interested in talking to you at whatever you're an expert on. Um, so I think it, it just is this whole interesting idea space. Um, and we're kind of at the early stages where it's hard to even predict the, the kinds of cool things that'll end up on it. 
That's awesome. I, I, I love that. And I also love it because I feel like the last few years that we, we've been big on like, you know, Web3 and Ethereum and, and Jason Horowitz funding the whole industry. And I think there's something a little weird about all of it. And I think we go back to Bitcoin. It's just, it's been there. It was the first, may as well be, you know, the last and the only one that hangs around in, you know, 20, 30 years when the dust settles with some of these other technologies. Um, I, that's my, that's my, my perspective. Yeah. Um, I think like one last question for you before we wrap up is you invest like very early stage yeah. in companies. Like I, like you're an investor in Seed Scout, you're an investor in a couple other companies that I directly know of and some indirectly. And like you invest early, which is very <laughs> risky. So I'm kind of curious, how do you think about risk? as an investor and do you see investing in super early stage startups like risky too or like do you have like a different kind of lens on how you uh like where you where you put your money and where you put your time you're right i i do invest super early um i agree it's risky even if you find the you know most brilliant capable founder working on an important problem there's just all kinds of variables that are a function of how small it is, right? Like how small the company is in terms of, you know, maybe it's one or two people working on it. And if that person has something in their life happen, or like they walk outside and the piano falls on their head, then like the company's gone like that, you know, that kind of, that kind of risk is always there. So it is inherently riskier than later stage, but I think that the um, you know, obviously the potential returns are much greater than later stage. If you, if you do, um, you know, invest uh, in something that ends up being a monetary success. And, and so I get excited about that space. I think that, um, you know, I don't necessarily know if everyone should be angel investing, but I do think more people should. I, I like that it's becoming more accessible and more democratized over the years. Um, I, I think a lot of the regulations around it, which, you know, um, maybe they're well-intentioned, but the accredited investor laws, for example, I, I think in some cases those create these, um, there's like gatekeepers, there are barriers to entry and some fantastic opportunities haven't been available to um, the average retail investor. Um, so I, I think that platforms that in a, like angel.co seed scout of course are like all examples of like building networks and building software around the process of angel investing so that some of the issues um early on the information asymmetry where investors would get taken advantage of like a lot of that can be de-risked through technology, right? By making information more accessible to people and then making it possible to, to be more informed about the bets that they're placing and to make it more of a, hopefully we end up at more of just like a point and click kind of decide and do it and not the friction of like, okay, well now I need to find this attorney who knows how to do this magic. Um, so I, I love just seeing it trend toward more accessibility. Um, it is certainly risky. Um, I, I would encourage everyone, you know, if you're interested in starting, start small, um, learn the ropes, but uh, do so responsibly. But I think it's um, the opportunity is incredible. And so excited to see it become more accessible. For my last question, if someone wanted to learn more about you on the internet, 
or kind of get in touch? Where's like the best way to kind of engage with you? Do you have a Twitter? Do you have a newsletter, you know, a website? Where, where can someone learn more about you? Yeah, the, that list is going to grow over the next six months. Um, you should hold me to that because uh, I'm going to start writing, putting more content out there. But um, for now, Twitter is definitely the best spot. Um, so I'm uh, S then C on Twitter, S-T-H-E-N-C. And mostly tweet about Bitcoin and startups. And, uh, and then you know, I, have, I have a small landing page, stephencole.me, with just kind of some info on the, the investing that I do and uh, the bare essentials as well. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. It's great to get some of your genius recorded so people can hear it. <laughs> and um, too kind. And best of luck finding the next 10 unicorns. Thanks for coming hey, on. Appreciate it, Matt. It's been a blast. Thanks.